Our next section is 1 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 11. 4, 6 to 11. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, for it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. In verse 4, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you'll notice here that he is emphasizing the fact that Timothy has to make these truths known to others. It's not enough for Timothy himself to believe them. He has to tell other people about it, especially since he is an elder or pastor of his church. He has to preach and teach these things. That's what he says in verse 11. Prescribe and teach these things. He has to convey the truth. He has to point these things out to others. And if he does so, he'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Why does Paul emphasize this to Timothy? And for that matter, why is it here for us also to learn? Notice in 2 Timothy chapter 1, I believe the reason he has to emphasize this to Timothy is in 2 Timothy 1 verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. He hasn't given to us a spirit of timidity. Timidity or fear does not come from God. It comes from the devil. If it doesn't come from God, then we ought not to allow it to remain in us. Because God instead has given us power, love, and discipline so that we may carry on and carry out the the Christian life. When he teaches this to others, to the brethren, to those who need to hear it, it's going to meet with resistance. It's going to meet with uncertainty. It's going to meet with rebellion, perhaps. But he's got to still do it. He still has to be faithful in pointing out these things to the brethren. And if he does so, he'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. A good servant. Not a wayward servant, not a lazy servant, not a wicked servant, but a good servant. He'll be one who faithfully does what his master wants him to do. The master was this way, and so should his disciples be. It's not enough to observe the teacher, but one should be like his teacher, as Jesus said in John 13. So, be just like Christ, a good servant of Christ. Follow Him. And even in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, the Apostle says, Imitate me just as I do Christ. Imitate me as I do Christ. The way Christ was, Paul was, and the way Paul was, Timothy is supposed to be. Because ultimately, when Timothy follows the example of Paul, he'll follow the example of Christ. Now, in doing this, he has to constantly be nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. At the same time, while he is pointing out these things, while he's being a good servant, he has to be constantly nourished on the words of the faith. 
constantly nourished on the words of the faith. Because we become weak and feeble and faint spiritually when we do not have the nourishment of the Word of God. We need regular, constant exposure to the Word of God. Individually, in our families, in our churches, we need to be in the Word of God. This is where our nourishment comes. It doesn't come from paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. It doesn't come from paying attention to anybody who has a religious thought or idea. We have to do it based on the words of faith, of the faith that's here in the Bible, the truth, the gospel of Christ. This is our true spiritual nourishment. This is what we need. This faith is also synonymously called sound doctrine. Sound doctrine, not false doctrine, not unsound, unhealthy, destructive, and poisonous, but that which is sound. The sound doctrine is associated with the faith. The faith does not have any mixture, any mingling of truth and falsehood. It is all true. When we think of the faith, when we think of the sound doctrine, when we think of the gospel, whatever term we use, it is completely and fully healthy and good for our souls. There's no mixture of error. Nothing that's heavenly and hellish in it all comes from God. He reminds Timothy that he has been following this. Timothy, you have been following the words of the faith and the sound doctrine. You have been doing these things, yet it's necessary for him to be reminded it's not enough. It's not enough that you have been following. It's necessary for you to persevere. He who perseveres until the end will be saved. It's necessary for him to point out these things to the brethren. He has to keep on pointing out these things. He has to keep on being nourished in the faith. He has to um, persevere in doing so all the way until the end. If he's not talking about it, then it has become less meaningful to him. It has become less to him. He's less zealous about it, and that's not a good place to be. Uh, the, The right and good place to be is to maintain the same standard and to press forward to a higher standard of the Christian life, which Paul mentions in Philippians 3. You have followed, continue to follow, and follow until the end. If the focus is supposed to be on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine, here again he contrasts, verse 7, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Have nothing to do with worldly fables. Worldly fables. Don't associate, don't imbibe it, don't bring in some of that and mix it with the Bible. The worldly fables have to be jettisoned. We have to get rid of it, completely do away with it. Have nothing to do with it. It's worldly. It's worldly and it's demonic. It doesn't come from God. What comes from God has already been explained in verse 6. What comes from the world needs to be rejected. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James 4.4, we cannot be a friend of the world. Have nothing to do with what the world says. And what the world says is fabulous. It's, it's fictitious. It's mythological. It has no basis in truth and reality. What the world says is a fable. It's a myth. 
He speaks of this also in 2 Timothy chapter 4. First, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. People will turn aside to myths, that which is untrue, unhistorical, fictitious. That's what they'll do. They'll listen to tales and fables rather than that which is actual, historical, true, real. They don't want that. They, they actually do want to listen to lies. They would love to listen to illusions, to dreams, dreams that will never come true. He says, too, that these things are fit only for old women. He mentions this phrase, old women, because it's not new for the women to be deceived. After all, he already said in 1 Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 2, 11, Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. Since the Garden of Eden, women have been deceived. And even Eve says in Genesis 3.13, She admits to God, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Second Timothy 3 also mentions this susceptibility that women have to deception. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. 2 Timothy 3, 5. He describes many of the sins of the last days. And then in verse 5, he says, that These people are holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, and avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Avoid these men who have a form of godliness. They pretend godliness, but they deny its power. They deny its power, its power to save, its power to convert and to transform, to overcome sin. They deny its power to deliver from hell. These people ought to be avoided, have nothing to do with them, and what do they do? How do they deceive? They enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is the devil's way of making inroads into marriages and families and in, into churches. People, and here he's focused on describing that these worldly fables are fit only for old women. This is the inroad the devil makes to destroy people and the church. 1 Timothy 4.7 On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. That's the way it happens when we listen to worldly fables, but we ought to be disciplined for the purpose of godliness. Our discipline, our hard work, our exercise, our exertion 
needs to be for godliness. Don't be preoccupied in a mistaken way with bodily discipline, verse 8, for bodily discipline is only of little profit. Bodily discipline. These preoccupations and obsessions people have with uh, forbidding marriage and abstaining from foods and anything else that they might do and putting the focus in the wrong place, misunderstanding the purpose of these physical things, they are promoting bodily discipline which is only of little profit. What they really are missing is the spiritual, the godly part, the eternal. Godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. We have to understand the true biblical definition of godliness. Not the preoccupation, obsession, misunderstanding, undermining of the physical to undermine the gospel. We ought to understand the physical in relation to the spiritual, the godly. Let the godly interpret the bodily. Don't let the bodily interpret the godly, but the godly interpretation influence the bodily interpretation. Because the godly holds promise for this life and also for the life to come. Doing these things, as we spoke earlier about abstaining from foods and prohibiting marriage, if they truly understood how to properly pursue marriage and to properly pursue food, then it would have profited them here while they are in the world. As long as they live for 70, 80 years, it would have profited them in that way, but they would have even more profited in a godly spiritual way if they had understood its true purpose. So understanding the true purpose spiritually will help now and in the life to come because we are focused on eternal life and true knowledge of God through these means, not a false knowledge. Verses 9 and 10. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. What he has said And in this case, what he is about to say about this inordinate, unbiblical, contra-gospel focus on the bodily discipline, he ought to believe it. He ought to believe what Paul is saying about it because it is trustworthy and it deserves full acceptance. Fully embrace what the apostle has said. Verse 10, For it is for this we labor and strive. It is for this we labor and strive. We labor and strive for the present life and also for the life to come, to embrace that which is trustworthy, that which deserves full acceptance. We labor and strive this way. We work hard this way because we have fixed our hope on the living God. Our hope is not in a dead idol. Our hope is not in man. Our hope is not in an instrument or in an animal. Our hope is on the living God. The one who created the world is the one who sustains the world and who will see us, his people, all the way to the end, into the life to come. This God is the one we trust, the creator, the redeemer, and the one who will consummate all things at the end of the age. He is... God is, this living God is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. He is the Savior of all men. When the Apostle says Savior of all men, he means the one who is the 
benefactor, the one who is the provider, the one who supplies all our needs, the Savior of all men, the one who supplies the needs of all men. People all around the world are benefited from God because He is the Creator and the Sustainer of the world. He especially helps believers. He especially has a care and concern for His people, the believers, especially. Galatians 6.10 may be a parallel to 1 Timothy 4.10. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So then, let us do good to all men. The obligation of the church is to do good to all men, to help them with their needs, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Those who are in the body of Christ should receive our special attention. Even more, we should help them, especially help them. We should do so because that's the way God does. God provides and helps for all men. He supplies rain. He causes His rain to fall on the righteous and the wicked, on the just and the unjust, as it says in Matthew 5, 45. And also in Acts 14, Acts 14, 15 to 20, there he explains how, he explains to the people that God is the one who gave them rains in their seasons, filling their hearts with joy with the food that came from the rain. So God is the supplier of all needs, but especially of believers. He especially will take care of us and make sure that we have what we need to press on. Now we might ask, why is it that he's mentioning this in verse 10 at this point? I believe he's mentioning it because Timothy is being exhorted here verse after verse after verse in this chapter. We saw this in verse 1. The Spirit explicitly says, explicitly says, verse 6, in pointing out these things to the brethren, also, he, he speaks of the need to have discipline. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, verse 7. And fully accept all that I'm saying. Labor and strive about all these things. Prescribe and teach these things, verse 11. And then verse 15. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress may be evident to all. Verse 16. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Timothy is supposed to press on, zealously, wholeheartedly be devoted to the things of God, and even to convey these truths to others. What do you think might, might happen to Timothy if he presses on ahead of everybody else and calls on everybody else to follow him? He's going to lose some people. Some people will not want to pay attention. Some people will not want to discipline themselves. Some people will not want to take pains and be absorbed and pay close attention. They won't want to do these things when he points out these things to the brethren. And so Timothy may lose people. And when he loses people, he's going to lose a following. He's, he's going to lose income. He's going to lose his reputation. Among some people, he'll lose it. Therefore, he has to be putting his hope on the living God, who is the Savior or provider of all men, especially of believers. Especially Timothy, 
should know that God will take care of his needs. I remind you again that in 2 Timothy 1.7, it says that Timothy had a problem with timidity. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. And even 2 Timothy 1.12, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Prescribe and teach these things. These are the things Timothy should believe, and he should teach them faithfully. Without any mitigation, he should not compromise any of it. Let's look back at verse, verses 6 and 7. Again, we see that Paul is constantly making a contrast between true teaching and false teaching. Verse 6, true teaching, and verse 7, false teaching. This is always what he's doing. He's doing this. Jesus does this. The prophets do this. Everybody throughout the Bible, from beginning to the end of the Bible, is always teaching the truth in contrast to the error. We must know the truth in contrast to the error. We must know both. We have to know both so that we can properly discern and identify what is true and embrace the truth. We need to recover this. We, we need to recover the need to do so. As a pastor, Titus chapter 1, verse 9, Titus 1, verse 9, expects pastors to be able to do this. Titus 1, 9. Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. The pastor is supposed to be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. It's not enough for him to just speak of that which is good and positive. What the Bible does assert, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus was an unblemished lamb. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus rose from the grave. Yes, it's good and true to speak about those things, but in contrast to those who reject those things. There are many people who reject Jesus being the Son of God, or that Jesus was sinless, or that Jesus died on the cross, or that Jesus rose from the dead. We have to say what, he, what it is truly, and then what people say in contrast to it and why it's wrong. Both are necessary, and we have to have nothing to do with the wrong, with the worldly fables. And as I said earlier, it has to do not only with theological truth, theological and historical truth, but also moral truth. If somebody is promoting, in, in our day, if somebody is promoting homosexuality, that one can be a homosexual and a Christian, then we cannot simply say what the Bible says positively about these things. We have to speak negatively also. Say, if anyone embraces that, then he is an unbeliever. He will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's living contrary to the gospel. He's a heretic. He's a homosexual heretic or a heretical homosexual. He's not a Christian. One cannot openly and brazenly believe these things and practice these things and say he's a Christian at the same time. We have to contrast the two. After all, if we're going to say a homosexual can be a Christian, then according to 1 Timothy 1, a kidnapper can be a Christian at the same time. And then if a kidnapper and a Christian can be 
together at the same time and go to heaven, all kidnappers can go to heaven if they claim to be Christian, then we also should say all members of the KKK, Ku Klux Klan, because they claim to be Christian, many of them claim to be Christian, then they go to heaven. Even though they have a hatred towards others, they're all going to heaven. It's okay. They don't have to obey love your neighbor as yourself or love the brother. They don't have to obey that. And if they're all going to heaven, then that means all the Black Panthers and all the Black Lives Matter people, they're also all going to heaven. They can be Christian and hate white people. And you can still be a Christian and go to heaven. You see how ridiculous this is? How absurd and contra-biblical all this is? You cannot compromise even on the moral. You have to contrast. You have to say that which is true and, and warn people to have nothing to do with worldly fables. Being a Christian is properly and, and clearly enough identified in the Bible. We have to embrace the one and reject the other. Another truth we see in verses 7 and 8 is the need to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. We live in a day where there is a, a love and actually an idolatry for that which is physical. We have a love of that which is physical and we put our, all, all of our hopes, all of our pursuits, all of our time and money into that which is physical. We have to recover the spiritual and the godly part. The spiritual and the godly. Why is it that we spend so much time on our hobbies, on our athletics, on all of the things that amuse us, we spend so much time, hours upon hours, week after week, day after day, we spend so much time on those kinds of things and give little concern for spiritual and godly things. Why? I think that's because many people who profess the faith are not actually confessing it and living a life in accordance with it. They're not true believers. They might say they are, but they're really not. Because they don't characterize themselves, both to themselves and, and before other people, as wanting to be godly. They'll know more about all kinds of foods. They'll know more about all kinds of, uh, of sports heroes, sports uh, stars, all-stars. They'll know more about them. They'll know more about guns. They'll know more about all kinds of things. And among the women, where to shop, what to shop, when to shop, how much it's going to be, what books to read, what novels to read. They know more about all these things except where is the godliness? Both men and women need to recover this fact that godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And finally, in verses 10 and, and 11, he says, we, we labor and we strive for these things. We need to put our hope on the living God. Our hope on the living God. We need to trust Him. We're not trusting Him. We have the fear of man. We have the love of pleasure, the love of leisure and convenience and comfort. This is what we have in our day. We don't have the love of God and the hope in God. We, we don't do so because we see all around us there are people and even men who should have more courage and not do this, but we see that they don't speak up. 
They don't point out these things to the brethren. They don't prescribe and teach these things. And not only is Timothy as a pastor supposed to do that, but even the people who hear him are supposed to do that. 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. And the things which you have seen, uh, which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Whatever Paul's teaching Timothy, he's supposed to prescribe and teach these things to put hope in God. Not in men, but put their hope in God. And then whatever Timothy teaches others, those men, those people are also supposed to teach others. It's supposed to keep on going from generation to generation. It's not only the duty of the pastor to preach the truth without compromise, but it's also the duty of his hearers to believe the truth without compromise and then to tell others about the same because it's incumbent upon all of us to be this way. Prescribe and teach these things. Don't fear man. Don't fear the world. The fear of man brings a snare. But fear God and live for Him.